On this week's Adam Schefter podcast, we bid goodbye to two men who are retiring, one who covered the Houston Texans, another who played for the Houston Texans. We'll be joined this week by the former Texans and Packers linebacker, Whitney Merciless, who spent 10 seasons in the NFL before announcing his retirement last week. And then we'll also be joined by the great reporter from the Houston Chronicle, a man who spent 47 years covering the Houston Oilers, the Houston Texans, and the National Football League, somebody who's been around the sport and has tons of stories to share from it, the great John McClain. But before we get to any guests and any conversation, first I wanted to address the death of Dwayne Haskins and the tweet that I posted this weekend. It was insensitive. It was a mistake. And I can assure you is not my intention. I wish I could have that tweet back. The focus should have been on Dwayne, who he was as a person, a husband, a friend, and so much more. I wanted to apologize to Dwayne's family, his friends, the players in the National Football League, and offer my condolences to everybody close to Dwayne. And in the way I failed Saturday, I wanted to turn people's attention to make sure that Dwayne is remembered properly. After his outstanding career at Ohio State, which led him to become a first-round draft pick, most recently, Dwayne appreciated the opportunity that the Steelers had given him, and he was responding to it. Every day when he left practice, he would bump fists with head coach Mike Tomlin, with general manager Kevin Colbert, and with team president Art Rooney, which was his way of showing that he was grateful to be a part of the organization. They grew incredibly fond of him, and there was a mutual respect and appreciation. Dwayne loved living in Pittsburgh. He adopted it as his home and rarely left. He was in the Steelers training facility every day after this season ended, working to make himself better, to give himself a chance to compete for the team's starting quarterback job. There are those in the organization who are convinced he was on his way to doing it and that his best days were ahead of him. Dwayne was with the Steelers quarterbacks coach Mike Sullivan every day watching film. And when he wasn't taking steps there in the film room, he was in the weight room working out. He was making a difference, not just on the field, but off it, where he was known to be incredibly selfless. He was as active as any Steeler in the community, never saying no to anything the team requested going to food drives around Thanksgiving with turkeys and taking kids shopping for toys around Christmas. He did work in the community without the team asking or even knowing he did it. He immersed himself in the community and he'd become a part of it. Just a few weeks ago, he went on a Steelers fan cruise. And by the end of it, he was the most popular player on that cruise and they all wanted him to come back. He was known for his smile, his kind heart and his dreams and sadly and tragically, those were all snuffed out before they could become a reality. Dwayne Haskins was beloved by his teammates in the NFL community as the outpouring of support over the weekend showed. He was beloved because of his smile, his attitude, his work ethic, his growth, and the man that he had turned himself into. His was a life taken too young. He was 24 years old, a month shy of his 25th birthday. This is the Dwayne Haskins that deserves to be remembered. This is the way he was, 
and the way he lived. And apologies, that was not made clearer sooner by me. But the people who knew him best knew this already. This was the man they knew. He always will be missed and always will be remembered. Sincerest condolences to his family, friends, and everyone he touched. All right, there's no easy way to transition, but we were scheduled all along to be joined by the former Texans and Packers linebacker, Whitney Merciless, who spent 10 seasons in the NFL, was a unanimous All-American at Illinois before the Texans drafted him in the first round in 2012, spent the entirety of his career in Houston before finishing out his career in Green Bay. The former Texans linebacker who announced his retirement from the NFL last week, Whitney Merciless. Whitney? What's going on? How you doing? How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you very much for the time today. I appreciate it. Of course. No, I appreciate you having me on. Well, I want to ask you, you know, we announced our retirement last week. Mm -hmm. What led you to come to that decision right now? And what's ahead for you in the future here? Yeah. Um, so after the season was done, of course, you know, I had the, uh, the bicep tear, had a few injuries along the way. Um, you know, I was dealing with like, you know, some back issues, like a slip disc uh, a while back. So, you know, I, I, it piles up, you know. So this offseason, I really wanted to evaluate just to say, all right, um, am I in a good spot? Am I in a good spot? Um, yeah. If I do retire, am I going to be bored? Uh, and also uh, making a decision, have I done everything that I could? Um, and uh, do I walk away with my uh, health intact and everything? I asked some peers, um, you know, leaned on them, leaned on family advice as well to close friends. And I took some intentional time away, you know, just to process everything. And, you know, I came to the conclusion, like, I'm, I'm okay with uh, walking away. I've always wanted to play 10 years. Uh, I got to 10. I could have did, you know, another five if I wanted to. Um, but, you know, for me, I, I'm very content of where I'm at, uh, you know, having played this game, um, you know, being a child watching, you know, all my favorites growing up and uh, being able to uh, essentially from where I come from, uh, you know, winning a Super Bowl life that's going to the NFL, playing for 10 years, uh, you know, establishing yourself as a prominent name for a franchise, which is uh, which was pretty cool. Before we get into some of those other things, you mentioned playing with a slip disc, you mentioned your health, leaving with it intact. Do people realize sometimes how many injuries players play through and what they put themselves through to be out there on a Sunday? You know, uh, a lot of the uh, the reports go out, you know, for the injuries and stuff like that. But um, there isn't really a whole lot. of. I, I think of it like more so we're always like uh, kind of robotic a little bit in a sense. It's uh, that. You know, they hear about these injuries, but they can't relate to, uh, you know, the injuries itself. Right. Um, only we know within the industry itself. And uh, it can be pretty tough. I mean, it's a, it's mentally taxing, you know, when you got to go out there on game days uh, and play with the injury itself. You're never playing 100 percent. The only time you're 100 percent is at OTAs in the beginning of training camp. That's it. And then after that, it's like, you know, you, you get the fingers, uh, you know, the torn ligaments, you get torn ligaments in the, you know, in the feet. Um, I know some guys who tore their fascia in their feet, things like that. Also, you know, uh, of course, I mentioned the slip disc. I know a bunch of guys that are dealing yeah. with that. So it's just mentally taxing each and every day. You know, when you're young, you can fight through it. You can wake up. You know, you're like a spring day. You're young, spry chicken, just getting out there and going playing. But when you start to transition to that, uh, you know, that year nine, year 10, year 11, 
It yeah. takes a little bit longer to uh, get ready to play. I always remember John Elway when he retired. He said that when his career started out, he could get out of bed the next day and not feel anything. And then a couple of years in, he it would last until Monday or Tuesday. And then a few years more, it was the pain would last till Tuesday or Wednesday. And then a few years more until Thursday or Friday. And eventually it got to the point where the pain was there all season long. And you just have to learn to play with it. 16, 17, 18 years into your career, it's just something that never goes away. Exactly, exactly. And man, he, he gets the best. There's a whole bunch of guys who, uh, who have mentioned that. It's funny, when I got, when I got into the league um, and, you know, when you're young, it's like, man, I'm invincible. None of this is going to happen to me. I remember all my OGs, my, like my, my, like the, my mentors, they told me, hey, man, you better, be take this, you better not take this for granted because you can wake up, play, go play football, you know, straight out of the bed. But once you get to my age, man, it's going to take you a lot longer. It's probably taking you about an hour. You got to break a sweat an hour before the game itself. And uh, once I got to that point, I was like, oh, snap, I should have slept a long time ago. <laughs> so it's been, it's been a learning curve. Now, well, let me ask you this question. It's mm-hmm. April. But what happens if in, let's just say, November, a contender needs a pass rusher. There's four or five games left in the season. Hey, let's call Whitney Merciless. What would be your reaction to getting a con- to getting a call from a contender later in the season wanting you to come back to finish the season strong one more playoff oh, run? Oh man, that's uh that'd be tough to pass up, you know, and uh, that's something that where I'd be struggling, you know. I'm just freshly, you know, announcing my retirement. It's still within a year. And you know, each guy that retires, they get that itch, you know what I'm saying? So it'll have to be one of those situations where, uh, do I, do I not? Let me ask my fam. Let me ask some friends and stuff like that. But, uh, man, it'll be, uh, it'll be a game time decision more. So do do, do, do you stay in shape until then? Like, do you keep working out or do you not like you're retired? So how do you handle that thinking you're not going to play, but always knowing that you never know what happens here right later this fall and winter? Oh, yeah, that's a good question. And um, the biggest thing is guys, well, I mentioned the injuries before. And the guys who uh, mentored me told me that you're going to have to stay in the weight weight room. You're going to have to stay exercising just to maintain the pain and stuff like that, the injuries. So it's just one of those things where, you know, you lose some weight. You can always gain it back. Um, You stay in the weight room. You know, you condition because, like, yeah, I, I don't know what it is. You know, linebackers, DBs, we tend to get fat. And then, you know, the uh, the, the offensive linemen you know, tend to get small. So that, that is yeah, true. It's weirdest thing. I never thought about that before. You're exact. All these offensive linemen, they all look like half the man they used to be. And and and, and the other people look like double the man they That's used to be. Because all linemen, they got to eat all the time for like 10 years, 10 years plus if they're playing for that long. So they've been big for so long. So it's like, man, you know what? I want to be small. So it just happens. So uh, yeah, for me personally, I, I would just like, just keep on working out, um, you know, keeping up my conditioning level. Cause like as an athlete, you just don't want to be out there walking up some stairs and just be winded after two stairs, you know? Right. <laughs> so, so, so you're just not the natural course of order is to stay in shape. And if it leads to something, it leads to something, but we're not planning on that being the case. Exactly. Exactly. Now, now you also founded the with mercy foundation, which, advocate services and support for families of children with disabilities and special needs. How much time will you have to give to the with mercy foundation now compared to however else you're planning to spend your time? Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, I would always go into the off season and, you know, do, uh, 
to buy my time with with Mercy Foundation and uh, put on put every resource that I had within myself in order to uh, you know get this thing off the ground uh, with my team and just make it absolutely perfect. Now with all the time with the retirement, I've got plenty of time now in order to really refine any systems, really get the outreach going even more so and making it really prominent itself. So I'm looking forward to that. Um, yeah, and with the with Mercy Foundation, it's awesome that we've been able to advocate for in, um, individuals with disabilities, kids, uh, you know, teens alike, uh, young adults, and uh, helping out families as well too. Partnering up with organizations, donating towards the or, uh, organization's services, so families can enjoy. And also, we just rotate disabilities each year. Uh, the focus is always different. So this year, it's bipolar disorder, um, and we're focusing on that just because. Uh, I was affected by it, um, not personally as far as the disorder itself, but because I had a friend who actually uh, passed um, because of it. And uh, around his uh, passing is just very mysterious. So me and a couple of buddies were still looking for answers, just like his family. Of the causes that the With Mercy Foundation has tried to help, is that the one that has touched you the most, bipolar? Or is there another one that really struck a certain level of sensitivity with you? You know, uh, as far as the, it's what I studied in college. I actually studied community health, disabilities and rehabilitation. Um, that's a concentration. And uh, I really fell in love with it. Within my family, it, yeah, we've always been a part of the healthcare industry. So my parents were like nursing assistants. Um, my sister, uh, she has gone on to do uh, medical research and it just fell upon me where it was just natural gravitation towards it. So before I even went to the league, I was actually starting to take classes towards pre-med before I went to the NFL. So, wow. Yeah. So, um, so, uh, so essentially once the NFL came knocking, I was like, man, I just can't let this degree go to, go to waste. So um, that's where the With Mercy Foundation became born over a lot of experiences with kids in the hospitals, stuff like that. Um, so there wasn't really anything that was gravitating me towards like, you know, a certain disability that affected me. It was just more so uh, just the giving personality that I am, that I have for my family and the route that I was going to go. Any chance you'd ever go back to medical school now, Whitney? To be honest with you? No, nah, after, uh, after talking to my sister, there's no, <laughs> okay, <laughs> not even a chance. I will be going back to school though. Uh, I'll go do my MBA. Actually. Really? Where and when? Uh, haven't, uh, haven't even decided the school yet. I've looked at the top schools like Harvard itself. Uh, Michigan is pretty good. I heard. And then also, I mean, my own alma mater, University of Illinois, pretty good. And then U of H, which is U of H and Rice, which is right in my backyard. So still deciding. Well, let's on just that. say you went to Harvard or Michigan, like a school away from where you are right now. Can you imagine what it would be like walking onto a campus now with what you've accomplished, with the success that you've had, with the foundation that you said, what would that be like? Being on a college campus around people a decade younger than you with them trying to achieve the things you already have in life. Yeah. Um, it, it, you know, for me, it would be great to impart some knowledge that, uh, you know, and to understand exactly how the real world actually works, um, because. For me personally, when I was in college, I wish I would have had somebody to tell me, okay, you should be concentrating on this um, you, and whatever your passions and whatever you're motivated by, figure that out, you know, pretty, you know, sooner than later. Um, and you can always change in life. Don't, don't, don't get me wrong. You can always change later in life. Don't, 
don't always be sold on the first idea. You know, you always are an evolving human being and your interests and your passions are always constantly changing. So it's just one of those things where, yeah, uh, everything that I've accomplished, everything I'm still trying to accomplish, I can really impart some uh, some great life experiences to uh, some individuals. So you will go get your MBA, right? That's going to happen. Oh, no doubt. And what do you dream of doing next? Like what is big? What is in that mind of yours? What fuels you? Because it sounds like you've got big hopes, big dreams, and it sounds like you could do just about anything you want to do. No doubt. No doubt. Uh, <laughs> I've been told anything I put myself or my mind or advocate yeah. myself to, like I can go achieve it. So I always believe that even, even if I fail miserably, but I'm happy that I did the experience. But, you know, the next steps, um, I've always had my hand into like several different things like restaurants, businesses, uh, real estate as well, too. So um, I've actually worked and invested with uh, private equity companies here in Houston. So I've got a taste for it. I've got like I, I really um, gravitated towards that side of, uh, you know, education itself and just the, the practicality of it. Um, so essentially, one of these days, it would be great to have a private equity firm itself um, and go do something like that. Wow. That's unbelievable. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, I, I mean, it's just I, I, like, I don't know, my like I got a sweet tooth for it, honestly. It's like it, it, I just get passionate about it. I love talking about the, the, the finance structures. Um, I, I love looking at deals all day long. Um, poking hole through deals, sending it to, uh, you know, talking to my attorneys, stuff like that. So it's just something that where I'm just like, that's my next passion itself. Wow. Now, when you look back on your football career, when you're walking around a college campus trying to get your MBA, what will you remember most about it, Whitney? Man, honestly, it's uh, not only the guys in the locker room, man, it's been great to play with like some of the greatest, uh, greatest guys in football. I mean, you know, you got Ed Reed, J.J. Watt, Brian Cushing, uh, Matt Schaub, Arian Foster. I mean, you could uh, Andre Johnson. I mean, the list just goes on and on and on and on. Um, but also just being a, being able to walk out on that field during game days, feeling like a glad, modern day gladiator. And, uh, you know, the, the crowd just roaring uh, for you when you make a play, when the team makes a play. Uh, it's been awesome to be able to experience just the two different, uh, you know, organizations, the Texans and the Packers, uh, getting that feel. It's just been awesome. So I'll always remember that. I'll always remember that. As somebody who will never experience walking out into a field to screaming fans and that feeling, what does that feel like? Man, man if, if I could just package it in a bottle and just go sell it. I mean, how many people say that yeah. they'd be a billionaire, you know, um, and to describe it, it's like. I mean, you're already getting amped up, you're juiced up, you know exactly your responsibilities, what you're going to go out there and go do and execute. But man, when you're looking down the tunnel and for the first time, it's like, okay, you got tunnel vision. Everything is just locked in. And you see that whole day, you're about to run out there and say you're going to get announced. I mean, it is the best feeling in the world. It's like, you know, they announce your name, the whole crowd announces your last name and just goes absolutely roaring loud. And you just look around and it's just like a, a spectacle, honestly. I mean, you just see, you know, the cheerleaders, yeah. the mascots just, you know, parading around. You see the opposite team over there. And then you just see the red crowd just like shaking. It's just like awesome. It's awesome. And you finished out your career this year, the season this year in Green Bay. What's it like mm -hmm. to play for that team, that storied franchise, that time of year when you're having that success? How would you describe that experience, Whitney? 
Man, I'll tell you, man, it was absolutely amazing. Um, you know, of course, I played a bit for nine and a half with Houston, but to go see what the storied franchise like them was absolutely, it was all inspiring. It was just magical itself. I mean, you walk in, you got nothing but greatness. It's like you see Brett Favre, you see Reggie White, you see you know, all these names, Charles Woodson. I'm just like, wow. And then, of course, you see the uh, the four Lombardi trophies that they had over the course of the years. And, uh, man, it was just uh, – it was just awesome. And then also just the way they treated their people itself from top to bottom. They, they, they knew who they were. Uh, they knew how to, of course, treat people. And that's them all from staff all the way down to the players. And everybody just had a great sense of pride, um, uh, a great sense of like family itself. And that's why they were so successful on game days. I mean, Green Bay, of course, there's not really much of anything to do, so you can't get in trouble. But you knew your responsibility and you did it to the best of your ability. And if you didn't, then, I mean, you're just not, you just don't fit within that culture. And for me, that was like the epitome of what a franchise should be right there. And for them to do it for so long and be successful, it was just awesome to be a part of. Hey, Whitney, I want to thank you very much for your time today. I want to wish you luck uh, and congratulate in your retirement with whatever's next. I know that NBA is going to be coming. If it gets disrupted by a return to football, so be it, right? Maybe there'll be a chance to go get a Super Bowl ring, but whatever it is, I know there'll be great things ahead in your future. Yeah, appreciate it, Adam. Appreciate it. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore a seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors. I do, you do, we all do. Big, small. And when we keep them bottled up, as I sometimes have had happen in the past, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest, and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. It's helpful for learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. It empowers you to be the best version of yourself. It isn't just for those who have experienced major trauma. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Adam today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com slash Adam. From one retiring Texan to another, there was Whitney Merciless, and now the legendary Houston Chronicle reporter, the man who covered the National Football League for 47 years years the general the great john mcclain hello john how you doing adam how's everything going right oh gosh i'm so tired of being honored <laughs> uh yesterday i had to, the, the rockets invited me out to they have a celebrity shoot a first shot for charity a free throw and i never paid attention to it i thought it'd be like 30 minutes before the game jesus right after they they announced the starting lineups 
players are watching me. All the people are lined up on the free throw line. People from the Rockets, the building's almost full. They've got it on the big screen. And I had, I had uh, spent, I had to go buy a new basketball. Mine was flat. Hadn't been out uh, in the driveway 15 years. And I also have a torn rotator cuff in my right shoulder. So I paid 51 bucks for a basketball shot for four days till my shoulder almost fell off. And uh, they asked me at the Rockets, you need to take some warm-ups. I said, no, oh, come on out. So I go out there, and the fans are on the stands, the media's around. So when I actually shoot the free throw, Jesus, I've never, I told a friend of mine, I've never been nervous doing any broadcast at all, was never nervous on any acting assignment. I was scared to death to shoot an air ball, but I didn't. I clanked it off the rim, and everybody gave me a huge ovation because <laughs> people like Vince Young and Carl Lewis had had shot air balls. Wait, did, 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 Carl, did Carl Lewis and Vince Young shoot air balls yesterday, or was that another time? No, no, time? no, when, when their time was. And uh, and I sat next to the owner, Tillman Fertitta, on the floor, and uh, and then they stopped the game in the third quarter, come over, and TVs are on me, and they're doing a video tribute, showing pictures through the years. Really? Most of them, most of them wouldn't recognize me because I was like 150 pounds ago. They're probably wondering, who's that on the screen? When they're talking about McLean. And so I just, I was blown away. They brought a bunch of Chronicle people out there in, in uh, secret to come out there with me on the court. I was so focused on the rim, I didn't even notice all the writers and editors standing around behind me. And what did the mayor's office do for you last week? It was John McLean Day at uh, the City Hall. And I went down to City Hall and Mayor Sylvester Turner, who I know a little bit. Gave me a big old frame proclamation, a caricature. And uh, then I had to stand up in front of City Hall after he made his speech. Three of them talked about growing up and reading me and listening to me. And it was, uh, it was uh, my photographer said, it's the first time I've seen you in a suit since you went to Hall of Fame in 06. And I said, that may be the only time I've had one on. And, uh, but I've, I've just been blown away, blown away. And what other honors are left, John? Like we've got the John McLean Day. Texans have something coming. They've already had John McLean Day last week. Texans have something. They told me to keep a date open. I don't know what they're doing. Somebody said he's done everything but the Astros throwing out the first pitch. So I'm expecting the Astros, who know they're my favorite team, and I've been a fan since the first game in 62. So I'm guessing they may do something, but it's been overwhelming, I can tell you. And it's so funny. Everybody thinks I'm retiring. I only retired from the Chronicle. I still do 10 weekly talk shows in six cities, including four here on the Texans flagship. So it's not like I'm going away. When you think back on all this, the John McClain Day, the Rockets honoring you, the Texans honoring you, maybe throwing out the first pitch for the Astros if they have their thinking straight. Would you ever have imagined growing up in Texas that these would be honors that would one day be there for you? Let me ask you, do you ever growing up on Long Island envision you're going to be making 50 million a year or whatever it is you're making? <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> Although that may be your goal, that may be when you're 60. Of course, we don't think about things like that. I'll never forget first time you called me. Do you remember? Rick well, you Marcy know, was on yeah. vacation. You were backing him up, and he told you to call me. This was 
in the off season. If you want to know about the NFL, call me. And I'll never forget. You call me and introduce yourself. When would that have been that you were Rick Morrissey's backup? 1990 is when I started covering the Denver Broncos in the NFL. So I've been doing it for 32 years. Okay. So we met 32 years. Well, is that, were you the backup before that? Yeah. Yeah. In the early 1990s, I was the backup. So whenever you were doing Rick, that's when you called me. So we've known each other for 32 years. And I remember meeting you and being blown away at how many people you knew at how you handle yourself. And I always watched how you did things. And the way you conducted yourself with people. And we had many dinners together as I was growing up through my formative professional years. And there was a lot of John McClain influence that rubbed off on me. I remember staying at your place in Denver, getting Marriott points at the city center Marriott. (laughs) And learning that shortcut to the stadium that you always took. Uh, You see that? that? That was a great little shortcut. Yep, still is, right? Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, it'll be the same spot. It'll be the same spot. Oh, uh, let's go back, though. You've told some stories here. You wrote about your career in the Houston Chronicle. And there are a couple of stories I wanted to ask you about. What about Gordy Howe? You were around him. You touched on him in your retirement column. What did you learn from Gordy Howe, John? I knew who Gordy Howe was when I grew up in Waco. And when I took this job, I ran to the Waco Public Library because that's the only way you could do any research. And I went in and got everything I could get on him. And one of the things in every magazine and newspaper was how he beat up people, sharpest elbows in hockey. So when I got here, I'm scared to death. If I ask this guy the wrong question, he's going to give me an elbow in the nose. And then when I actually talked to him, I couldn't believe how easygoing he was. And the first time we made that trip across the U.S. and Canada, I was scared to death when I hit turbulence for the first time. And I looked at Gordy, he always sat on an aisle seat. He had these little granny glasses, came down on the end of his nose, and he worked crossword puzzles. And when we did turbulence, I looked at him and he wasn't paying any attention to it. Some other players might have been scared to death, but I thought if Gordy Howe is not afraid of this turbulence, why should I? He's been flying since the 40s. And so uh, one time we were back in Quebec City. And we were on a little charter to get to Montreal to catch a uh, flight across the country. And it's the worst turbulence I've ever seen. A couple of players were screaming. And I was next to the team captain, Ted Taylor. And we both thought we were going to crash. And he said, the only people worry about crashing on a plane are ones with kids or money in the bank. You got kids? I said, no. He said, well, I know you work at the Chronicle and you got no money in the bank. So I'm feeling pretty good. I looked back at Gordy and I knew he was going to be working that crossword puzzle. We had nothing to worry about. Gordy was squeezing the armrest so hard. I thought they're going to break. And then I saw him cross himself and I knew we were going to crash. And I thought if he's scared, I should be scared. And fortunately we didn't, but traveling around two countries, Adam, watching him the way he dealt with the media, the way his teammates respected him, opponents. You think about this. World Hockey Association, here's 44-year-old Gordy Howe who come out of retirement, Mr. Hockey. Today, 40, you know, Tom Brady would go, so what? And he was out there banging on all these people that were in their early 20s, and they all had so much respect. He signed things before games, after games, and he just signed them 
during the game, the timeouts, if he'd have been allowed to. And this wasn't my line, but it's a great one. Learning hockey from Gordy Howe would be like learning the Bible from Jesus. It's an unbelievable line. Learning hockey from Gordy Howe is like learning the Bible from Jesus. Who said it? I think it might have been Dale Robertson from the Houston Post who covered the uh, who covered the arrows before me, before becoming a columnist to come into the Chronicle. So that was your encounter with Gordy Howe. What about your encounter with Sammy Ball, one of the greatest football <laughs> players in history? It's funny you say that. I just went to lunch with a guy and seen him since in since the late nineties. His name is Cowboy Bill Lamza. You talk about a character. And he lives outside of Houston. So we met halfway between where we live. Took me 40 minutes to get there. He is the one in 1998. I noticed Don Hudson had died. And when Don Hudson died, I looked at that original class of the Pro Football of Fame in 63 and saw Sammy Ball. Slinging Sammy Ball was the only one alive. And I knew he lived on a ranch in West Texas. He was famous because he'd been living there since the late 30s. And he was at the base of a called the Double Mountains. If you look at a map on, of Texas, you'll see the Double Mountains, a little town outside there called Rotan, R-O-T-A-N. So this friend of mine, Cowboy Bill Lambs, had told me he played dominoes with Ball, and Sammy would play dominoes with anybody. So I said, can you call Sammy Ball, see if he'll let us come out there, Chronicle, pay your way, and um, – and we'll go and spend a day with him, and I'll interview him while you play dominoes. He said, sure. So we did, and Sammy cussed like crazy. And the bosses said, to capture the essence of Sammy Baugh, I, I had to use some cuss words. And they put a disclaimer on the story. The story ended up being four open pages wow. and with a few pictures I took, and they let me use these words. And so soon as we got out of our car, he comes out on his porch, his ranch out in the middle of nowhere. Turned out he owns several out in West Texas. So as soon as he comes out of the porch, he and Cowboy just start going at it, cussing at each other. We go inside. He feeds us some food. He lived there by himself. Once every two weeks, his daughter-in-law would come over and line up some card tables and everything that had been sent from him to sign from people all over the world. They would, they would put slinging Sammy Ball, Rotan, Texas. That was it. But the people at the post office knew who he was and where he was, and they delivered it. He had this huge stack of footballs and jerseys and paper and pictures, and he tried to sign for everybody that sent him something. And he didn't sign slinging Sammy Ball like people wanted. He signed Sam Ball because he said, I can do that and sign twice as many. So. While he told stories to Cowboy while they were playing, I was blown away. And he played – he's a great baseball player. His nickname, Slinging Sammy, came from baseball, throwing a ball from third to first base when he was at TCU, and a sports writer gave it to him. It wasn't from football. And the other story, Adam, he told was – Well, what about the – wait, wait, hold on. Before – what about the story on his porch, you and him? Okay, well, that's last. That was at the end of the trip. (laughs) So – he regaled me with stories like that. And we spent the night there. And the next day he gave us peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for the ride back to Lubbock. And uh, he and I were standing on his porch and I asked him, I said, why 
do you live way out here? Why don't you move into Fort Worth or Sweetwater? Sweetwater is a town where he would drive 30 to 40 minutes every weekday to play golf. And uh, Fort Worth where he went to school. He said, I stay out here because anytime I want to take a piss, I can come right out here on my porch and do it, not worry about anything. Said, in fact, I got to take one right now. <laughs> want to join me? So I did. <laughs> so you and Sammy Ball pissed off his porch in, Rant in Ranton, Texas? Is that what it's called, Ranton? Rotan, Rotan, Rotan Texas. So you you and he both peed off his porch and Yes, we did. Ranton, off Texas. Porch in Rotan, Texas. Rotan. Outside Rotan, Texas. Yeah. And uh, I tell you, I've never been, of all the people I've interviewed, and they've been some great ones, George Alice, Bill Vack, Bobby Lane, Joel Bushbaum. There's been so many. Nobody was like Sammy Ball. Nobody. Wow. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What about the Houston Oilers and Texans? When we look back at your time covering the NFL, who stands out to you modern day for somebody that you've interacted with and had personal dealings with? Well, my first time I went to training camp with the Oilers was in 77 up in East Texas. And, um, and that was, they had not, they wouldn't be the love blue Oilers till the next year when they drafted Earl Campbell first overall. And then, became great for three years in a row, but lost two ASC championship games at Pittsburgh and then lost the wild card game the third year at Oakland. And all three, when both those teams won the three Super Bowls, but they were fun. They were wild. They were crazy. It was the urban cowboy era. And so they were wild and crazy. Everybody wore cowboy hats. Everybody wore cowboy boots, including me. And it was fun. They were they were really good. And and then when they traded Dan Pastrini from Kenny Stabler, still the biggest one-on-one -on -one quarterback trade, and Snake came in here at the height of the urban cowboy age when he was already wearing big cowboy hats and driving a Bronco with horns on the front and snakes on the side and wearing cowboy boots. You talk about came here single. Every woman in Houston, I think, was after the snake. It was a fun season. And then when Bum got fired, they were bad six years in a row. And I tell people with the Texans who complain, you've had two losing seasons in a row. Have six in which you don't win more than six games and see what it's like. And then, and but what they did all those years, they drafted offensive linemen like like Mike Munchak, Bruce Matthews, Dean Steinkuller, defensive tackle Ray Childers, and they signed Warren Moon. They went to the playoffs a league best seven times in seven years. And people test me, what are the worst things you went through? And down here, Adam, you can say one word, 
Buffalo. You don't have yep. to say anything else because they blew that 35-3 to third quarter lead and lost 41-38 in overtime in the wild card game after the 92 season. And then the other one was when the Oilers moved. It was a two-year process. It was ugly. Uh, it was a horrible thing to go through. and But it led to the Texans. And I think the best thing I've seen with the Texans was seeing all the hard work Bob McNair put into it and everybody thinking they were going to L.A. I wrote a column. I said, bet the house, NFL going to L.A. Once they gave them an exclusive negotiating period to get the team. But McNair, who had the business leaders, the politicians, his, he put his money into it. He got a stadium built. And everybody loved Bob McNair. To see them get that team and put it together uh, with Charlie Cashley's general manager, Dom Capers as the coach, I thought Houston would never get another team. I used to write, we were going to be the minor league capital of the world when it came to football. And I was so happy to get another team. I didn't cover them the first three years. I was covering the NFL because I'd go anywhere I wanted. I spent a lot of time with you when the Broncos won those back-to-back Super Bowls. That's when I was covering the NFL, and I loved coming to Denver. So I had the greatest job anybody could ever have, go anywhere spend any amount of money, write as much as I want. So I only picked the best cities to go to. Nashville became my home away from home, still is. And we got a team here. But, you know, Texas have never even been past the divisional round. You know, they're probably the most exciting game they ever had was playoff game in 2011 when they beat the Bengals here and a rookie defensive man who had five and a half sacks intercepted a pass and took it to the house. And that's where the J.J. Watt phenomenon was born. And so that was probably the biggest victory they've had. And as as Bob McNair always knew, because I told him, you're going to have to go to the Super Bowl before you're going to earn the popularity that the Oilers had at the height of their popularity. But the Oilers never went to the Super Bowl. Nope, nope, but they won some big games and they were fun with Earl Campbell and Bum Phillips, you know, both genuine Texas legends. And they lost twice at Three Rivers Stadium in the AFC championship game. Everybody here swears Pastorini threw a touchdown pass to Mike Renfro to beat Steelers when, in fact, Steelers still would have beaten them even if that had counted because Steelers were just too good until the Patriots came along. They were the greatest dynasty in NFL history. How has the league changed in all the years that you've covered it? You've spent 47 years around sports. You've spent the majority of that time covering Houston and the National Football League. What is the biggest difference in this sport, John, in the time that you spent on it? People might think today this sounds weird, but offensive linemen could never extend their hands. They had to keep their hands when blocking defensive linemen inside their shoulders. And then in 78, because the game was getting too run-oriented, and Pete Rozelle and Tech Schramm and some others figured out, fans want to see offense. They want to see touchdowns. And so they made it where the offensive linemen could extend their arms when they were blocking to help protect quarterbacks. And today, can you imagine if guys, they had to block some of these pass rushers by keeping their hands inside? And then they also – 78 went to 14 games, shortened it. That was good. My first year in 77, my first camp, a little over two months long, six weeks, six games, eight months, eight weeks of camp, first day, double days, 
full pads and they beat the hell out of each other because coaches thought back then this is the way you get them in shape. So many of them had to work jobs. They couldn't start working out till June or July. So they'd work them like crazy in camp. I think the rules to open up the offense was great because quarterbacks, you know, they play so long, they make so much money. I think the owners just basically stole from players so long. I love play, seeing players get big contracts and get the money they deserve because the owners wouldn't be paying it if they didn't have it. Well, you've been a gift to the sport, John. You've been a gift to Houston. You've been a gift to me. You've been a gift to many people. I thank you for your service. I thank you for your time today. Truly appreciative of it and you in general. Adam, it's my pleasure. Thank you very much. It's been an honor knowing you for 32 years and watching you go from backup beat writer to Rocky Mountain News to being the best in the country at what you do and being well rewarded for it, too. (laughs) John, I appreciate you. Thank you very much. And we will be in touch. Thanks a lot. Take care. Bye-bye. And there he is, the great John McClain, 47 years covering the National Football League, somebody who had an instrumental role in my Life, professionally speaking, traveled quite a bit with him when I was younger, always looked up to him, and they didn't call him the general for nothing. He was always the general on the football beat. All right, in the preceding episodes of this podcast, we have talked about draft stories. And while we're acknowledging mistakes today, also worth acknowledging a mistake from the 2010 draft, which also just happened to be the first draft that I was covering for ESPN. I was all excited to get on camera and be a part of the great ESPN draft coverage that I'd always watched growing up, be a part of it. And one of the very first hits I did that year was the Philadelphia Eagles traded up to number 13. And whenever there's a trade, they turn to Mort or myself and they ask us for what we know about the deal. Well, I had known that the Eagles loved Earl Thomas. They also loved Brandon Graham, but there were two players they were eyeing. And somebody had said to me that if they trade up, It'll be for Earl Thomas. And so when they went to him, I had a producer in my ear saying, do we know what this is about? I said, yeah, throw it to me. And they threw it to me. And I said, the Eagles have just moved up to number 13. They like Brandon Graham. They like Earl Thomas. But a lot of people are in the league believe Earl Thomas is the player that ultimately will be the pick here for the Philadelphia Eagles. Back to you, boom. And we threw it over to Chris Berman. And the pick came in. And the pick was announced. And the pick was Brandon Graham. And so one of the very first hits I ever did on ESPN, I blew, made a mistake, had two players, thought it would be Earl Thomas, turned out to be Brandon Graham. And the great part of the story was almost a year later, 11 months later, when I was at the NFL owners meetings and checking into my hotel, I checked in behind the then Eagles head coach, Andy Reid, and he brought up to me the draft day incident from 2010 and he said i wanted to let you know i was watching on tv in the war room and you came on and you started to say earl thomas and i started to say out loud no adam no adam no adam and we got it wrong we got it wrong and the fact that andy reed remembered it 11 months later and felt bad about it said a lot about the type of man that andy reed was at that time and so while we're sharing some of the draft day hits from other years on Baker Mayfield or Delt O'Neill. Here's another one of those incidents that you'd like to have back if you could. All right, I want to thank the former Texans linebacker, Whitney Merciless, the retiring Houston Chronicle reporter, John McClain, 
I want to thank my producers, Christina Buswell and Sarah Abbott. And I want to thank you, the listener, for tuning into another Adam Schefter podcast. Please join us again next week. We'll be back with more interviews, more insight, more information. And until then, have a great week and be safe.